This morning's teaching text comes from John 3:14 through 21. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may, might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light, and do not come to the light, so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, friends. It's good to see you again. Uh, my name is Guy. For those of you that don't know me, and I uh, have the privilege of being the pastor here. And I was reminded this past week, before we jump into this text, uh, before we pray and jump into this text, I was, remind, I was reminded this last week of why we do this. Why do we pause in the middle of a gathering? Why wouldn't we just um, sing a bunch of songs or spend more time getting to know one another? Why wouldn't we just have more pastries and coffee? Like, why pause in the middle of a space like this for, to listen to one person talk for sometimes way too long? Am I right, guys? Um, why, would we, why would we do this? I was reminded this week that there's a couple of primary reasons why I think this is really important. At least it's important for me. I wonder if some of these resonate with you. I think we pause to look at the scriptures because our hearts need it. I think there's something that uh, happens in the act of preaching where we actually have to move past intellectual, gr- like grabbing new information and actually allow these words, if we believe they're true, to actually sink into our hearts, begin to change us there. I think another reason why we need this is because every single one of us, when we gather in a space like this, we, um, we need to receive something that is ripe and, and, and real for this moment right now. There will never be another Sunday morning like this. There will never be a day like today in your life. And so the unique intersection of your needs and your pain and your hope and your joy and God's word meeting in this space, we need that. We need fresh revelation. I think that's another reason why we do this. I think another reason why this is like really important, and then we'll pray, is because I think the regular routine of your life and of mine continue to form us and shape us in a particular direction. And we actually need to pause and be reminded of the larger story that we're a part of. I think we need this because we need to remember. Because if we don't, we will completely forget what's really happening. The the fact that we've been redeemed. The fact that there is a great God. The fact that there is life and salvation and hope and forgiveness. Even though we look around and there's brokenness and pain and greed all around us. Because to me, those are some of the things that I'm praying happen in your life and in mine as we approach God's word. And so... Um, let's just do that. Let's just pause for a second. And let's just create that space in our own minds and hearts and ask God to do those things in each of us this morning. So, Father, um, there's probably uh, as many different reasons for why we're in this place this morning as there are people in the room. And yet somehow you and your kindness and your bigness and your sovereignty you can speak to every single one of us. And so, God, we long for that to happen. Father, save us from um, empty religious practices. 
Save us from trying to earn our way to to a better position with you because you don't care about that. You don't see the world that way. You don't approach us that way. God, speak to our hearts this morning that we would be changed. Bring us fresh, a fresh word that every single one of us needs to hear this morning. Set us free to be the people you've created us to be. In your name we pray. Amen. I wonder if you would um, just raise your hand if you think or you equate vulnerability with weakness. When you think of vulnerability, do you think immediately of weakness? Gut response. Seriously, I actually want you to raise your hand. How many of you think being vulnerable is being weak? Come on, hands. It's okay. Either, either you are the most courageous, vulnerable people on the planet, or you're terrified to be vulnerable right now in this moment. I'll let you decide. I think most of us would equate vulnerability, would equate um, some sense of exposing ourselves to, to our, 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 our inside thoughts and feelings to another human being as, vul- as weakness because attached to being weak, attached to being vulnerable, is this idea of shame. Is this idea that somehow I don't feel adequate enough to be with you or for you to know who I really am. Because honestly, probably, like most of us don't even quite sure that we even like who we are in the first place. And so when we begin to think about being vulnerable, we immediately think of weakness or things that are less than strong, less than courageous, less than, 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 than leadership qualities because we aren't sure we like ourselves and we're pretty sure you might not like me either. And so shame sinks in. Shame tells us that we're not good enough in some ways. Brene Brown talks about shame this way. She says, shame is really easily understood as the fear of disconnection. Is there something about me that, if other people know it or see it, would make me unworthy of connection? I can tell you it's universal. We all have it. The only people who don't experience shame have no capacity for human empathy or connection. We've all had those experiences. Maybe even you this past week have felt this fear of disconnection, this fear of not being accepted because of who you are or who you really know yourself to be, and so you haven't put your real self forward. We talked last week about the gap that exists between our real self and our ideal self, and the the wider that gap gets and the harder it is for us to hold those things together, the more tension we feel internally. I can remember when I was 14 years old, And my parents found my mom's stash of Victoria's Secret catalogs stashed away in my room, hidden. They'd come in the mail, and as soon as a new one would come, I'd run out to the to the to the to the mail and bring the mail in. I was like, oh, there's a new catalog. Go to my my parents' bedroom and grab that catalog, and then it would just hide in my in my bedroom. And I remember the day that my parents found that. Like having to sit down at the um, at the the family room the dining room table and and like just I was found out. It was exposed. Worst of all, it wasn't just me and my brother. I had brought Nat and Aaron Gill into the mix as well. So, sorry guys uh, about that. But there was this deep sense of embarrassment. That even at 14, um, as I was exploring what the world was like around me and and, and trying to figure that out, there was this um, sense of embarrassment and shame that came from my parents finding me. Finding this secret that I had. And at 14, or at 18, or at 25, or at 45, or at 85, we, experience, we have these moments, don't we? We have these experiences where we fear disconnection. We fear that somebody will find us out, that there's a flaw in us, and we don't want other people to know that it's there. 
Alan Mann wrote a book called Atonement for a Sinless Society, and he says this. He says, The self has a sense that it is defective and has a basic flaw that ensures its unacceptability and rejection by those whom it loves. Shame thus contains a fear of abandonment, loss of love, and so a loss of self. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we live in this tension of whether or not somebody is really going to accept me for who I am. This fear of disconnection, this fear of loss of love, and ultimately, where we don't even really, truly know ourselves. Now, as we're talking about shame, I want you to also understand a a, a slight distinction between guilt and shame. I think this is really important. So many people would say that what the scriptures do, what God does in salvation, is he takes all the things that you've done wrong, guilt, we feel guilty for things, for all the ways that we've sinned or messed up, and he kind of covers those things. And yes, that's true, but I actually believe for uh, our culture, for our society, for you and I in the world that we live in today, we're less concerned with the ways we've done bad things and more concerned, more worried, more anxious, more stressed out about who we are. That's what our culture tells us anyway. And so the distinction I would just make quickly this morning is that guilt is about the bad things I've done, my actions and behavior. Shame actually directly impacts who I am, my self-identity. Does that make sense? And so I'm guessing some of us feel guilty for a couple of things that we do. But by and large, if I had the chance to sit down with you, we could begin to unpack your story and the weightier things of your story. And it's not so much guilt because you robbed a bank or stole from your boss or, or lied, but you feel shame because you actually feel bad in and of yourself. I hope this is striking home for us, for you. And so if this is true, if this is how we see the world, if, um, if this is how we see ourselves, if we feel uh, unworthy, if we feel like we're losing our sense of identity, if this is the basic human response to the way we see ourselves, then how do we deal with shame? What happens? What happens when you encounter this? When you're about to be found out, when you feel like your whole world's going to unravel and you're going to be exposed? How do we normally deal with shame? I think there's a couple of uh, three ways in particular, actually, that we deal with it. The first is we hide. We, we throw our hands up. We, 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 we try to find ourselves in a, in a posture where nobody could see us, where, where maybe you won't actually see the real me. This could be an image of, of sometimes the way that we feel. It's like the hands are there and a little kid is like, if I can't see you, it's not real. Object permanence is a reality that your, 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 your babies kind of move into, a child moves into. And maybe in some form, even though we are adults and we understand that if, if I take this microphone and hide it and cover it all of a sudden, I, I still know it's there. But yet when we come to issues of shame, we actually, we actually go back to, revert back to the very elementary ways of seeing the world. So we hide. And maybe you don't literally hide. Maybe you're not completely a recluse. Maybe you don't completely go run off and remove yourself from normal life. Maybe some of us do. But maybe it's not that big a deal. Maybe it's not that overt. Maybe it's not that um, aggressive of a hiding. Maybe maybe it is. Maybe it's like in Genesis chapter 3 where we pick up on the um, the original story of sin and brokenness. Adam and Eve have been found out. They know. They feel this weight. God is looking for them. And the text tells us that they run and hide because they're afraid. So Adam and Eve have done this. You and I do this as well. We run away. We hide. The text even says, who told you that you were naked? I don't think, like, that's interesting, right? Because 
God the creator doesn't have to tell us that we are broken. God the creator doesn't have to point out the ways that we're, well, for Adam and Eve, in this case, all of a sudden found themselves in a position where they, they realized they didn't have clothes on. Their, their sin had been exposed. And so we find ourselves being exposed and we want to hide from it. Another author says it this way. He says, more and more, it feels like I'm doing a really bad impersonation of myself. And so maybe we don't completely remove ourselves and hide. Maybe, maybe it's more of a, I'm just going to present the best version of myself I know I can so that that's who you encounter. And that's a form of hiding. And we get tired of that. We, 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 we get stuck in this cycle of constantly presenting our best, the best version of ourselves. It's like starting a brand new dating relationship. You don't dare let the other person know who you really are, so it's always best foot forward. And then later on down the road, when you figure out this person's actually going to be around for a while, and you kind of actually like him or her, and they actually really like you as well, then, then the real you starts coming out. But this happens all the time. So we hide. What else do we do with shame? I think we numb. I think we try to numb uh, our, our shame in, in a way. I think uh, there's times when we uh, will turn to all types of different opportunities to try to convince ourselves that we're not really actually feeling what we're feeling in the moment. And so we turn to all, to all kinds of different opportunities. Some of them are, are, are more progressive or painful or damaging than others. But um, I found this great picture of a party in the 1930s. That looks like quite the riot, doesn't it? I'm loving the, the, the royal soldier-like garb there. What is that? I don't know. Let's not worry about it. Okay. So here's the thing. Whether we're, we turn to partying, um, maybe drinking, may, maybe some form of addictions, maybe, maybe it's just shopping. You've heard of shopping therapy. It's a, it, the struggle is real, folks. Maybe, um, maybe it's just never slowing down. Maybe for you it's in the quiet, still, small moments when you... When nobody else is telling you what to think or how to feel, you begin to feel the weight of kind of your, your, your core inner brokenness. And so you just don't slow down. You, do, you just don't stop. You're just never quiet. You just keep going. Just where's the next thing? What do I need to do next? There's a lot of different ways that I feel like we begin to numb ourselves. Brene Brown also goes on to say that we are the most, in her opinion, the most in-debt, medicated, obese, and addicted generation of adults in American history. Could that be true? I think that's certainly um, more accurate for the city that we call home and that we love, isn't it? And so we have this feeling that we're not quite good enough. And if we're not hiding necessarily, maybe we're trying to just medicate. Maybe we're just trying to keep that, that stir, that buzz, just slightly beneath the surface as best we can. And so we cope in, a very, in various ways. But here's the problem with that. The problem with that is that your soul, the way your humanity is put together, doesn't allow you and I to be able to separate the bad from the good. And so what often happens is, when you and I begin to numb that part of our emotional being, we're not just numbing the, the bad part, we're not just numbing the shame or the pain or the, 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 um, the disappointment or the embarrassment. We're actually numbing our whole affective part of who we are. See, I don't think it's possible for us to just numb the emotional part of our heart that feels gross or, 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 or um, ashamed at the pain without it affecting our joy and our happiness and our gratitude and our love and our forgiveness. And so as we begin to numb, we actually are numbing our whole selves. 
I don't think that works. So we hide from our shame. We try to numb our shame. And lastly, I think we, pl- we play the blame game with our shame. Now, none of us as well-adjusted uh, human beings and adults would ever point the finger at somebody else and say it's their fault. This is child's play, right? But how, how easily actually is it for us to let ourselves off the hook and blame our pain, our struggle, our resource, our, our, str- our uh, 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 frustration on somebody else? Uh, the other day I was, um, well, let's look at the text first. Look at this, Genesis chapter 3. This is also from that classic text. This is amazing. God's having this encounter with Adam and Eve, and he asks the question, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? This is Adam he's talking to. He says, the man said, the woman you put me here with, she gave me some fruit from the tree. And I ate it. And then I ate it. I just, I did. I took a bite. It's like he like throws that in there like just the last little second. Like, oh, yeah, of course I ate it, but I wouldn't have eaten it, God, if the woman, she did it. That one. I blame her. And so the blame game has been ha- happening continuously ever since this very first conversation with God in the, in the garden. The other day I was um, walking home from, well, I was just walking home. doesn't matter where I was walking home from, does it? Not, a re- not relevant to the story, guy. Okay, I was walking home. I was um, walking across East 4th Street. Uh, at Avenue A, and uh, I was on the north side of the street. I had the, the light, by the way. Like, I had the yield. It was my turn to walk. I was allowed to be there. And uh, right as I get almost to the other edge of the sidewalk, like, I'm almost in the clear, I look up, and just this, out of the peripheral vision on my right side, a bike messenger is, like, cruising up the lane, cruising up the, the, the street. And I catch him in my, in, my, in my vision right about the same time that he sees me and, like, he happened to jump on the brakes right at the right moment, and my hands went up defensively, and, I, like, literally, he, his bike stopped, like, right between my legs in mid-stride with my hands like this. Like, he didn't actually slam into me, but he still hit me. Is it okay for me to say? Like, I feel like he hit me. That's, that's what I, that's, for the sake of this story, we're just going to say he hit me. All right. I'm bruised. It hurts bad, guys. We'll talk about it later. Okay, so he hit, this collision happens, and, um, I may or may not have, you know, defensively protected myself and also told him this wasn't cool, something like that. Anyway, and uh, he got the idea because he threw his bike down, and this was what he was doing right away. He was like bobbing and weaving, like ready to go. I was like, am I, am I in like a commercial or like a uh, candid camera thing or something here? Like, what's this, this guy's like a cartoon, just bobbing and weaving, ready to go. I do respect his form. His hands were up, right, Johan? Hands up. Okay. So, listen, um, this dialogue happened between me and this gentleman. And I won't go into all the details except to say, I was, I was, this time, I was actually legitimately in the right. I had the right of way. The light was mine. I was allowed to be there. I wasn't like standing and dancing. It was like a dance party in the middle of the street. Like I was walking across the street and this guy hit me. He didn't want to hear it though. Like he wanted to fight me. And even after the fact that he put his hands down and everything was kind of calm and I realized I wasn't going to get punched in the face, um, I realized, like, this guy wanted to, I'm like, you need to be careful, man. He was like, no, it's not my fault. Like, he said that. He was like, no, you. And he kept trying to, like, blame, like, it was back to me. It was all my fault. And I'm like, sir, could you just look at the light? Like, look up there. And so he paused and he looked, and it's still, like, blinking. The hand is there. It's blinking now, but it's still, like, I'm allowed to. Anyway, there was nothing I could do to convince this gentleman that he was actually in the wrong. And it was his responsibility to not run into me. I know it's a crazy idea. That somebody on a bicycle would have to follow the law. And it was really hard for him to figure it out that afternoon as well. But there's an epidemic of this in our culture. 
whether we realize it or not. Think about this. Has there been an occasion in your life where something has happened and occurred where maybe you should have taken, like it was your responsibility to take, but somehow you figured out a way to, um, you wouldn't necessarily call it blame, but you figured out a way to deflect maybe? Something happens at work, maybe with a roommate, and maybe with your spouse, and it's like, I don't want to take responsibility for this. I don't want to completely point a finger at this other person. But somehow, oh yeah, well, did you also know? Or did you see? I think we find ways of blaming others for the pain and brokenness in our lives. We do this through comparison or competition. And so on our own, what else can we do but, but hide or, or numb or blame other people? What, what else can we do to, to, to take off the mask and to, to, become, to become real? How, how can, like growing, growing up as the oldest of five, there was actually a sixth kid that lived with us, and his name was not me. I actually don't know if it was a girl or a boy. But like anytime somebody, my parents were like, who did this? Not me showed up. That kid was always messing up my life. But we, we have to figure out a way to stop saying not me. Because I don't think any of these things work, do they? I don't think hiding and numbing and blaming actually address the core issue. And so here's the power of Jesus, and this is what's happening in this text. Here's the power of what happens in the cross in Jesus Christ. Is that God reveals the one powerful enough truth to bring us out of hiding. To prevent us from numbing. And to keep us, to rescue us from playing the blame game. Here's what happens in the cross and in this text, friends. Jesus the Christ, the perfect son of God, takes on your shame and mine on himself on the cross. Not only everything that you've ever done wrong, not every, every broken promise, not, not only every lie, not only every time you've said something or felt something towards somebody or thought something that was less than pure and good and noble and, and beautiful, not only all of the pain that you've actually caused, but the pain that you feel as well. The shame, the internal angst that you feel at not being good enough. Jesus takes that on himself on the cross. Let me show you what I mean. I think as we begin to look at the truth, the power that God brings us in his son Jesus, this becomes good news. And it's good news because a, a savior has been provided God connects us to a larger story. Look at the text there in verse 14, chapter 3. John reminds us that there's a larger narrative of salvation going on here. And there was a point in time in Israel's history when they weren't necessarily following and being obedient and faithful to God. And so these serpents are all over the place and they're biting the children of God and people are dying from the poisonous snakes. Now we can deal with the sovereign God who sends poisonous snakes another time, okay, to punish his people. We'll deal with that another time. Here's the point. The compassion of God and the story of God's people was not to leave them in their suffering, but was instead, he told Moses, God said to Moses, make a snake, put it on a stick, hang it up really high in the air, and post it there so that when somebody does get bitten and they look at this snake, they'll be saved. Now there's all kinds of mysterious, beautiful, supernatural things happening in that story. Tons of stuff that needs to be unpacked. John doesn't unpack it for us necessarily here. He just reminds us that God has been in the activity of saving his people who want to be saved for a long time. 
And so God provides a Savior. The Son of God is here. And in the same way that a snake has to be lifted up and put on this post, the Son of God, Jesus, the perfect man, becomes man and is hung on a cross for all to see so that whoever will look at him, so that whoever will speak his name, whoever will give themselves in faith and belief will be saved. Their unworthiness is traded for his worthiness. Their pain is traded for his healing. Their being lost is traded for his salvation that he offers. And so everybody who looks up to him and believes will be saved and enter into life in God's kingdom. God provides a savior. And the motivating factor for this, God's motivated by love, friends. I think it's the same compassion and the reason why he, sent the, he told Moses to do what he did in the Israelites' story. And it's the same motivation of why he is still in the business of saving people today. God's heart is motivated by love, by compassion for the lost, for the broken. I love that story, this, this scripture that says, Jesus stood on the top of a mountainside and he looked up over the city and he had compassion on them and he wept. Why? Because there were sheep without a shepherd. Because he just saw people that were lost. They were wandering around. Do you ever see tourists in New York City and think, <laughs> or do you ever see tourists in New York City and think, I wonder where they're going. I could probably help them. Like, I, I probably more often than not feel the first way, right? Like, those suckers. Was that too much? That was way too vulnerable. Suddenly I feel shame. It's just oozing out of me. But you see somebody who's legitimately lost, and you know, like, you have a general, like, you have a good sense of, of, of where, kind of where things are. You want to help. That is like a microcosm, just a little small snapshot of the compassion of, of the God of the universe over those that are lost. Classic text that you know so well. It says, for God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Our kids go to PS110 on the Lower East Side. Last night we had one of our big annual fundraisers. and It's a ton of work, and it's really beautiful. It's a lot of fun. Uh, we raise a bunch of money for all the after-school programs and different, different electives and things. And um, uh, One of my friends, um, his name is Tim, and Tim, a bunch of our friends there know that I'm a pastor and that we, we, we do this thing called church. They sometimes call it mass, which I love. Um, it gives me a little bit of a background of kind of where they're coming from and what their story is about. But anyway, I was talking with Tim last night, and I, I, I'm careful to, like, look for the right opportunities to, to, to bring up spiritual conversations. Like, I just don't want to be the pastor that's always preaching all the time, like that guy who wants him in your life. Uh, but so this guy, um, this guy, Tim, he brings this conversation up with me, like the, the night's winding down. We have, finally have a chance to sit down and we're chatting for a few minutes, and he, he says, he, he, he's always bringing up spiritual conversations, which I love, and so one of the things he said to me is, we started getting on the topic of judgment, and he said, the reason I don't go to the Catholic Church anymore is because they're so good at judging, and I don't need that in my life. He said, I'm actually a good enough judge myself, so we started talking about that, that conversation, and of course, I think there's more to the Catholic Church than simply judgment, but one of the things that we were talking about was the fact that so, in his perspective, so many religions, in fact, all of them, in his perspective, have this sense of judgment and condemnation that God is angry and the only thing he wants to do is punish people. 
And so we had this opportunity last night to just talk for a few minutes about how actually I don't think Christianity is, is that way. That while, yes, there has to be an answer for our sin, our pain, our brokenness, we don't just get a free ticket. That God is not motivated by punishment. That God's not walking around the heavenlies, whatever that looks like, with cosmic like lightning bolts ready to strike people down as soon as they mess up. He's motivated by love, by compassion to come after us. It says that even while, the scriptures say, even while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Why else would that happen unless God is motivated by love? God provides a savior. God's saving activity is motivated by love. And in this scripture and elsewhere, the metaphor is that God's love comes to us in the form of light. God's love comes to us in the form of light. Elsewhere in scriptures, light is used to give us a sense of the Holy Spirit or the presence of God. And here, Jesus is equated to as light shining into a dark place. And so this is really beautiful. This is really helpful. This helps us understand that there's power in light, that there's something being offered to us in the light. The place that we often want to hide or run away from is actually the place where we need to go. It's like um, I was thinking about, uh, you know, if you're ever in a hotel, especially a nicer hotel, they have those crazy mirrors on like the, the accordion things in the bathroom. And on the one side, it's like a normal mirror. On the other side, if you don't know that it's like the 10 times power thing and you happen to just walk by it, you're like, whoa, startled. Or you're like, you actually take the moment. I'm, I'm about to be really vulnerable with you. You ready for this? All right. You actually, you know that this 10 times mirror power thing exists. You don't know how it works, but you know that it does work. And so you're just like, you stare into it for a second. And you like realize your eyebrows are kind of crazy doing something weird that day. Or something, you got something stuck in your teeth, but like you thought it was just like small. But now you realize it's like the size of a full head of broccoli or something. Like you, you, you turn the light on and all of a sudden everything is just, just so much more magnified. Like you can't get away from the blemishes, from the scars, from the, 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 the little details of how your face is put together, what your eyes look like that close, or whatever it might be. That's what's happening here. But in a much better, much less painful way, I think. God's light comes to us and it begins to expose us. That's the next thing I want you to see. God's light exposes the darkness in everyone. That nobody gets to get away from this. Nobody gets to hide. Look at the text in John 3. It says in verse 18, Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light, so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done done in God. What's John talking about here? I think what John is trying to get us to understand is that there's a way that we can stay in the darkness, and we actually choose to do that. And there's a way to move into the light. And even though it's painful, even though it's scary, even though we will be exposed for who we are, there is joy and hope and salvation found there if we're willing to take that journey. 
And so in the story of shame, as we think about what might actually keep us from moving into a place of healing, if, what, what might hinder us from moving forward in salvation and trusting Jesus is the fact that we don't want to be exposed, which actually feels for some reason safer to stay in the darkness, to hide. Because then nobody will know how messed up we are. Nobody will know the true story. Nobody will know our real struggles. But the process of salvation is that we would step into the light and that, that nobody gets to... Um, escape this, that God's light and compassion and love and grace exposes this, this journey, this flaw in all of us. Some of us choose to still hide. Some of us choose to still stay in the darkness. While others would step into the light and experience salvation. And so the question then is, well, first of all, before I get to that, let me just say this. Doesn't it just feel great Like, if you let this truth, what we're talking about today, settle in, doesn't it just do, what does it do in your heart to know that you are actually the same as the person sitting to your left or right or behind you or in front of you? What does it do for you to normalize the fact that we're actually all addicts, that we're actually all broken, that actually every human being has some form of of, of dysfunction and brokenness at the core of who we are, that all of us are wondering, wandering around thinking, do they like me because of who they think I am or they want me to be or because of who I really am? So just understand that every human being needs to step out of the darkness into the light, that every single human being has struggles, that every single one of our stories is riddled with joys and pains. And so we come to this, we step into the light, not because we're unique necessarily, but because we're actually the same. Because we actually, all of us, every single one of us, desperately needs to be rescued. And so this is the question that who in their right mind would step into the light if they knew they were going to be exposed for who they really are? And I would just suggest to you this morning that the answer to that question is only the person who's completely sure of the love of God. Or only the person who would dare just at least risk believing that God's love is true and real and available for them. And so we step into the light knowing that God has rescued us. That God has come after us. Listen to the the way that the Apostle Paul talks about it in Colossians chapter 1. He says, For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. Do you see the darkness light imagery again here in Paul? He's rescued us. He's brought us in, friends, into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Our shame, our brokenness, our inadequacy, our feeling like we're unworthy is met by God's open embrace, His welcome, His his standing there on the edge of, of our story saying, please come home. There's nothing you have ever done or ever will do that will push me away. There's nothing that you've ever done or ever will do that will make me love you more. God has rescued us and brought us in from the dominion of darkness, from that pain, from that place of hiding and numbing and blaming that doesn't work. That when Jesus was lifted up on the cross, when he endured the pain and sin and brokenness of the cross, he actually took on your sin and shame and mine. We were rescued. We were made new. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, he says, Christ redeemed us from that self-defeating, cursed life by absorbing it completely into himself. He says, do you remember the scripture that says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree? That is what happened when Jesus was nailed to the cross. He became a curse and at the same time 
dissolved the curse. So friends, the only question I have for you this morning is will you step into the light? The only question I have for you is are you tired of wrestling and dealing with and struggling and dragging along the weight of shame that you feel from being inadequate? Are you ready to step into the light? To experience that salvation, to experience that kind of uh, blessing, to experience that kind of forgiveness, that kind of weight being lifted off your shoulders. It's possible, friends, that you have never, um, you have never, there's never been a moment in your story, in your life, when you have surrendered yourself to the story of God. Would this morning, would you seriously consider what that would look like for you? And there's others of us in here who um, have experienced salvation, who have given ourselves to belief, who trust God consistently, at least as best we know how. And yet we still struggle and wrestle with our identity and this issue of shame. And so this morning, I would, I would believe that the scriptures and the, the spirit of God would say to you and to I this morning, please step into the light again in the way that you would just lay bare your shame, your pain, your brokenness, your struggles, because we all have them, and you would receive once and again the freedom that God would give you, the blessing that God would give you of being whole, of not having to earn his salvation or his approval, but of knowing knowing God and the fact that you are worthy and holy because he chooses you. And because Christ on the cross has taken your pain and your shame and borne it in himself and on himself so that you and I no longer have to carry it. I heard somebody say one time what kind of an offense it might be, what kind of message it might send that we would have a Savior knowing the great cost and pain that he went through to be able to to be that on our behalf. And yet, even though that's been the encounter that I've had for me to continue to keep picking up my pain and my brokenness and trying to carry it myself, it's as if I'm saying, thank you, Jesus, nice job on the cross, but I'll carry it from here. So maybe this morning, friends, you need to be reminded of the story you're a part of. We would open our hearts to the fact that God calls us into the light, out of the darkness, into the light. And the word that we would hear from God, maybe for some of us, is that we don't have to carry our shame anymore. We would receive that message of freedom and hope. Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus. Jesus, thank you so much. While at great cost, even your own life, you willingly went to the cross. And Spirit, we thank you that you are powerful and present. And that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead three days after his crucifixion, once and for all, defeating sin, death, Satan, and hell, we can stand here today in this room and celebrate your life in us. God, I pray for those of us that are having a hard time believing and trusting in that this morning, that we would take at least one step closer to you. Draw us closer to yourself, God. Father, for those of us that um, have never taken that step, God, give us courage to do that. 
And Father, for the rest of us who, who wrestle with our shame, who feel weighted down by thoughts of not being good enough, by being feeling inherently broken ourselves, we pray, God, that you would free us, free us from that broken way of thinking. Give us courage to step back into the light and receive freedom and your words of promise over us again. You loved us so much that you sent your one and only son that whoever believes will have life, life eternal. May it be so, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.